Hello and welcome to the Latest Sound Sport Podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jess Fastnich. So Jess is an exercise physiologist at the University of Worcester. Next to that, she's also club captain for Worcester Football Club and previously she completed her postgraduate degree in strength and conditioning. So who better today to discuss the demands of women's football than Jess? So without further ado, it's time to welcome her onto the show. So Jess, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you very much for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, of course. So I actually wear multiple hats. So there's part of me that works for University of Worcester, doing all the fitness testing for the Fire Brigade in Hereford and Worcester. And then there's another part of me that actually works for Science of Sport doing the Coach Academy. So obviously the mini courses we offer on kind of in the background, trying to help pull the strings and get tutors in for that. Also, while trying to play football, being club captain of Worcester City Women. So it's, yeah, it's busy, but I enjoy it all. Absolutely excellent. And what, where was your football career until now? Yeah, so I actually played in the States for a little bit. I played at collegiate level. Um, I think back when I played, I'm getting a little bit older now, but back when I played, there wasn't as many opportunities for women's football at the time. We had Centre of Excellences, which obviously has ceased to exist now. There's different, I think they call them like RTCs now. Um, but back then there wasn't that much. So for me, my main option was I'm going to go to uni regardless. I may as well look at kind of the options out there. And that's when the opportunity to play in America came up. So it's great. I mean, you get to study towards a degree, but you also get to play football, you know, pretty much full time. You're almost treated like a professional athlete without getting the pay packet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you get some school, but uh, yeah, it's not quite the same as, uh, as earning the millions that are available. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. So, uh, what about the World Cup on the mo- at the moment? Um, who do you think is going to win? Oh, tough one, isn't it? I've got to say England. I feel like I've got to be loyal to England. But I do think the Spanish look very good. Um, I think the Swedish have done very well to get through against the tough opposition they've had to. Cool. So, this is going out on Monday, by the way. So, this is, um, yeah, <laughs> at the point of recording, England haven't been eliminated yet. So, we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers um, crossed. Fingers crossed. So, um, when it comes to, to women's football, right? Um, obviously, that could be different to the men's game. So, can you give us a quick kind of needs analysis as to, to what women's football requires from the athletes and potentially how that can differ from then the men's game? Yeah, of course. So I think the first point of call is almost to look at what are the similarities. Like, I know that sounds a little bit strange, but what is the same? So when we look at women's football versus men's football, we know that, as silly as it sounds, the size of the football is exactly the same. We know the pitch dimensions are the same. We know the 45-minute half, 90-minute match overall, extra time, the officials are the same. And for the most part, pitch surfaces could be the same. Obviously, if the females are playing within the stadiums on, on, on grass pitches, occasionally there will be times when they do play artificial. So I think the most important thing is recognising, right, the game is exactly the same. But what is the difference? And the difference is pretty obvious. It's the physiological demands that a female may have compared to a male. And that's where it's really important in the needs analysis to be like, right, where's our starting point? We can't compare male to female athletes and vice versa. It doesn't work. So I think when we look at our needs analysis, we have to look at female athletes as almost like a separate, you know, kettle of fish, so to speak. So when we're looking at our needs analysis, the most important thing is to determine okay, we know the game is exactly the same as the men's, but what does differ? We know things like your VO2 max scores are probably not going to be higher as your male counterparts. We know things like strength levels, counter-movement jumps. We know speed and agility is probably going to be a little bit slower than our male counterparts. So when we're doing our needs analysis and we're collecting all that normative data, that's our most important thing is when we get that normative data, 
are we utilizing it for the squad we're working with? So as a practitioner, if I'm at an elite level and I've completed a needs analysis for my team, am I going to utilize that data to push one another and kind of use it internally? Or are we also going to draw on other elite clubs where there is data available and we can see maybe there's a benchmark? We might be a team in the WSL that might be considered a maybe a, a bottom half team and you might have data for your team, which is great, but you might want to push and be those top three, top two teams. And if there's data available on those teams, you can create a benchmark. The issue we then have with needs analysis is actually when we're looking at the non-elite side. So the non-elite is really, really scarce when it comes to data. And that's somewhere with the women's game, it needs to improve moving forward. So I think for me, we know physiological demands are very different. We can't compare them. We have to keep it completely separate. And can you take us through some examples of that? So let's say you, you mentioned VO2 max might be lower, but can you can you take us yeah. through what we can then expect from, from uh, women in, in uh, football? Yeah, good question. So typically with VO2 max, it's recording quite a bit of data that and research that's been conducted so far that normally a female at an elite level will have a VO2 max score between 50, uh, 46 sorry, and 57.6. So when we're looking at female athletes and we're comparing them, that's kind of like our golden nugget. That's the standard we're trying to, reach if we want our athletes to be at the top level when we're looking at the male side of things a lot of the research and literature today actually says that male counterparts at elite level are probably around 58.4 to i think around 63 64 so even with just the vo2 match you can see that there's a significant difference on how um you know vast it is when it comes to vo2 and i think it's things like when we look at females versus males and if i take as an example the respiratory system we know on average, and I talk typically, okay, because it's, you know, it's it's not like a, it's a standard, it's like the bell curve, so to speak. We, we're talking the average, there's going to be some females where it differs. But when we look at typical females and we look at respir uh, respiratory system, we know on average, they're going to have smaller lungs, they're going to have smaller airways, they're probably going to have uh, different lung um, geometrics compared to males. So what does that mean? Well, that means we're probably going to be breathing different. The efficiency demand is going to be different, and all these things will then affect not just our VO2, but it will, you know, it will, it will kind of implement and affect everything that we work with when we're working with female athletes. When we look at strength levels, again, we know that males tend to going to be stronger um, physiologically in terms of muscle mass. I think there was actually a study um, by. I want to say Danish for Danish football players, where they looked at a yo-yo test. So a lot of clubs will utilize the yo-yo intermittent one or two test. So the whole point of the yo-yo test, for those that don't know, is looking at recovery levels of athletes. And it's kind of seen as a, a gold standard test because of reliability and validity. And we can kind of gauge how good are um, our fitness levels for our team. And I think the one study that completed it for the Danish athletes actually found that within the yo-yo, the female Danish team actually completed probably higher than some male athletes that completed the yo-yo test but then this is where it's really important as practitioners that we kind of need to nail down into the, the why a little bit more so it's not picking apart research that's completed already it's kind of just being skeptical and being like okay so why is that the case and when you do delve into it that you know the danish level um, elite players yes they did represent high yo-yo scores which is obviously saying they're fit athletes they've got good vo2 maxes but actually, when you compare it to the male squads and the male athletes used and the sample size from the other studies, we're talking average male athletes. We're not talking the elite level. So I think that's one thing when we talk about the research in the women's game is we do have to be, I say sceptical, and I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, but I think we have to be sceptical, skeptical, sorry, to always question the why behind it. Absolutely excellent. So obviously there, there are differences. Um, 
and there's a, a, a huge variety of different physiological things going on, but what are then the additional considerations that we need to, to take into account? So obviously these, these people need to be trained. We can't just copy and paste the data from all the male studies or best practice. So what are the key considerations which we need to adjust or change for female football players? Yeah, great question. So I think the first thing says, and this works in the men's game as well, is we need to take into account when we're doing needs analysis and when we're working with athletes and we're trying to find strategies to inform training, because at the end of the day, we want to enhance athletes' performances. Athletes compete, they want to win, they're in a performance setting. But I think the most important thing is in the male and women's, uh, male and female game, sorry, is we need to take into account that tactics will play a big role because you could play a 3-5-2 and a winger or a wing back in a 4-4-2 compared to a 3-5-2 is going to have a completely different role, even though their role, so to speak, is the exactly same terminology. So in both games, we have to take tactics into account because different roles are going to enable players to do different things. They might cover more distance in one formation. They might actually cover more sprint bouts in a completely different formation. So I think that's something we take into account for both, both male and women. But when we're talking specifically female athletes only, it's obvious that, you know, females go through menstruation, we have to take the menstrual cycle into account. And it's, I would say it's a subject that used to be taboo. I don't think in today's world it necessarily is as much. I think people are talking about it more, they're tracking it more. Elite clubs seem to be doing a lot more around the menstrual cycle. We know that it is a basic physiological difference having a male athlete versus a female athlete purely because of a menstrual cycle. And it's a huge consideration we have to take into account as practitioners because some people might not have a menstrual cycle as females, but some that do, again, it's going to be very vast. It's going to be different. We have to treat it as individualized. We might have some athletes that really suffer with physical symptoms. Some might suffer with psychological symptoms. And then we might have some athletes that actually they don't suffer at all. Or they might be fine for three months in a row and then the fourth month comes around and they've had lots of emotional, psychological, maybe things going on outside of the sport that might affect their menstrual cycle. So that's an obvious consideration we have to take into account as practitioners. But I think we can move forward and do the right things to best serve the athlete. So if you're working with predominantly female football players, you know if they do all have a menstrual cycle, it's going to be different and we have to treat them differently. The most important thing as a practitioner, whether you're a manager, head coach, SNC, sports scientist, whatever your job title is, we have to understand how do we get the best out of athletes. And it could be elite level, we track it, right? I think Chelsea Football Club, Emma Hayes is very transparent with the menstrual cycle. Not only does she talk to her players about it openly and talk about side effects, symptoms, you know, foods that can help in different phases. Um, but I think they also have resources in place to just monitor well-being. And that's all it is at the end of the day is kind of monitoring that well-being of, right, how is this player feeling today? Maybe they've reported on an app or maybe a non-elite level. We're old school. We've got the pen and paper and people circle, you know, what mood are you in? How stressed are you? Those are certain ways we can kind of take into account the menstrual cycle to best serve the athletes. So I think that's definitely the main consideration we have to take into account. Second consideration for me is injuries. Obviously, injuries is part of the game. It's part of contact sports. You get it in the men's game. But I think in the women's game, again, a lot of the narrative at the moment in the news is around ACLs. So any female football player, it's one of those things that's always on the back of their mind. I think a lot of players go out there with it on the back of their mind. And it's obviously been linked to menstrual cycle. This is one of those things of ACLs. It's very multifaceted. There's no one reason why it might occur. And we are in a contact sport. So sometimes it might not be the shoes they're wearing. It might not be the surface that they're playing on. It might actually just be as a contact injury. 
But I think it's a consideration we have to take into account as practitioners because at the end of the day, if the athletes are seeing it all over the news and it's quite a global topic, you're going to bet your bottom dollar that at every level, elite or non-elite, players are talking about it and it's on their mind as well. So I think for me, those are the two main considerations we have to take into account when working with female footballers. And based on those things, then, is, is there anything that we should be doing differently? So let's say, uh, for example, with, with the testing that you might be doing, you mentioned some, some different wellness uh, options. Um, based on the physiology, the menstrual cycle, the ACL risk, what should or could practitioners do differently to accommodate those different risk factors? I think it's general check-ins. And again, at elite level, you'll get this quite often. Okay, You've got elite players that are there. They're paid to do that role. I think the trickier consideration to take into account is actually at the non-elite when you've got players that have full-time jobs, they've got families, responsibilities, and then they go to play football. And they might be at a good level. We might be talking tier three here, which is almost like, you know, league one, league two in the men's game. It's still a high level, but they're not considered professional. So I think that's where the biggest consideration has to be taken into account, not just with testing, just in general. So I think across the board, it's just checking in with players. The welfare side of things is, have you got resources in place to check in with players? And then I also think, again, it's team dependent. We might find that some teams have data analysis. And if they do, that's a good way to track certain metrics. So I believe that the rule of three is a really good thing to look at. So when you have all the data points, and you probably know in data, there's so much we can track for one athlete. And then you times that by a squad of 25, you're inundated with so much data. You're like, what do I do with this? And then the last thing you want to do is look into all those data points and then bore the athletes with it. So the rule of three works really well is select your three things as a team. And when I say team, I mean, an, you know, MDT, coaches, medical staff, SNC um, coaches, select your three that are the most important. And it might be things like acceleration and decelerations are looked at because in the women's game, what we often find is a lot of research suggests females are more quad dominant over hamstrings. So if we can kind of look at accelerations, decelerations and look at how many are the athletes doing per game and per training, you know, is there a vast difference between how many excels are doing versus decels? Are we finding as a result of that there's more hamstring injuries? So things like that can really help is identify what metrics are the most important if you have access to data analysis and then kind of create a plan off it. Obviously, injury prevention programs are potential. Um, for me, again, it depends at the level you're at. I think SNC is massive. At the elite levels, you'll have your own SNC coaches. You can be on specific programs. And obviously, if ACLs happen, it's one of those. It's an awful thing to happen to any athlete. But for me, the, the biggest grey area that we need to focus on is actually the non-elite, is how do we get these athletes back? Because more often than not, they're not getting surgery straight away. They might have to wait six months, 12 months, 18 months before they've even had surgery. So the SNC segment is extremely important to take into account. And then when we look at the testing, so we talk about the yo-yo, we talk about counter-movement jumps, um, we talk about speed and agility tests. They're obviously very important, but again, it's I think the most important thing is what is the, I guess, ideal and utopia test that you can use at the level you're at. That's the most important thing is because regardless of what your level you're at, there's no point completing every single test under the sun. Again, just to collect data points, you need to find a focus of what best serves the players that you're working with. And how how can people best go about doing that? Because it sounds, it sounds really good, right? But like, how do you find those those data points which are going to make a difference? Um, I think, so if we're talking non-elite level, I think we have to do normative data within the squad that you have. So again, if we're talking non-elite, it's quite hard because you might have a non-elite team in tier three or four. There's no point comparing yourself, your yo-yo scores, your agility scores, speed scores, CMJs to an elite player. 
because again you're not going to build confidence in the player because they're more than likely going to be miles off the elite level there's a reason they're elite um so the main th factor is if you're going to do the certain tests is create that normative data for that team and those specific players so you do your tests you might pick the yo-yo because you want to see what's their aerobic capacity like how quick can they recover and then you might implement the test at the start of pre-season and six weeks into pre-season utilize that test again now i always believe that again at non-elite don't do loads and loads of tests just for the sake of it stick with the most practical stick with the ones that you know when you've got that normative data you're going to do something with it so if you do do the yo-yo the great thing about the yo-yo is you can probably split the team in two split your squad up in half half of them complete it and then they flip flop and the other half complete it you've got your data points probably within 20 30 minutes and then what you can do is use that as your base and then when you test again in six weeks time again you wasted 20 30 minutes but you again you've kind of got that benchmark for not just athlete to athlete but you can do something where you bucket players you can put players into certain buckets of right we'd expect our center mids to have um, a vo2 score max of let's say um, 40 at non-elite i'm just plucking a number out of thin air but that's probably the best way to go about it is kind of bucket players and just stick with the normative data you have relevant to your team absolutely excellent so when we get on to, to applying this um i'm interested to hear how you've done this before or how you would go about doing it so can you give us a case study as to, to how people can go about improving physical performance in women's footballers and that, that could be like a, a really broad case study of, of going through different tests but it could be specific down to a, a training session so how would you go about incorporating all of this different information to provide a, a training program in order to improve female football performance yeah, good question. So I'll kind of take into account what we're doing at Worcester City this season. So we've started pre-season. We're probably about three, four weeks into pre-season. So what we do on the very first day is the SNC coaches and the staff will do the fitness testing. So players arrive. We completed a 1.2K. So essentially players have to complete a 1.2K across the football pitch. So 12 lengths as quick as they possibly can. The coaches have their data. In six weeks time, they retest us. But things we do in training to then help improve our scores are where we work on, like, you know, we do condition sessions. So what we normally do, if I break it down into one session, is we start the first 20 minutes with general mobility, get players ready. We go into a kind of a warm-up, doing your basic movements. We then normally go into a phase of a certain segment that that SNC has decided to pick for that day. So as an example, it could be we do a 20-minute block on acceleration, could be deacceleration, could be landing mechanics, could be balance work, could be lateral, lateral transitions, so we do that. It takes about 40 minutes to do all of that. And then what we then normally move on to is almost the conditioning side. So the, the important thing with the conditioning side is we know in football to last 90 minutes, you need a good aerobic base. But we also know that the anaerobic movements where we need high power, really explosive, really quickly. We also need those for jumping, tackling, you know, those pivotal moments in a game that often win us the game. Um, especially when players are fatigued, we know we need a good kind of base of those two. So what we normally do around our conditioning here is we will focus it on one or the other. So what our SNC coach might do is we might do 70% runs across a certain distance where we're changing direction for, let's say, 40 seconds. We rest for 20 and we repeat that eight reps. So that's a good way of doing it. Now, on the flip side, when we look at more um, anaerobic base, that's where we're talking max efforts, but probably a, a longer rest period. So we might do a 10, 15 meet a sprint complete it as fast as you possibly can then take your rest period of about 40 seconds to get back recover replenish those stores and go again so that's where it's really important is even in pre-season you can mimic what you do no athlete really likes just to run straight no one likes linear sprints it's not fun is it i don't enjoy it i do it but i don't enjoy it but the best way to kind of 
get buying from athletes is try and use the ball where possible. Obviously, at elite level, they know their rules, they know their job title, they know as part of the sport, you can kind of do anything with them. But still to create that buy-in, what you want to do is try and incorporate the ball as much as possible. And obviously, technical sessions, what you can do is you can adapt your pitch sizes, the amount of players you use, underload, overload, and all of these things obviously mimic the fitness demands you want to get out of it as well. So that's just a bit of an example of what we do. Obviously, it's that's specific to us at Worcester. Clubs can do it in multiple ways. Um, and I think the non-elite, again, I'll, I'll kind of bark on about it again, but with non-elite, it's really important that athletes don't just rock up and train twice a week and play once at the weekend. They have to be doing all they can in the week. So if you have a game on a Sunday at non-elite level mon and you play 90 minutes, Monday probably needs to be a recovery day or active recovery. And that's where athletes are on their own. They're trusted to do that, to do that themselves. Let's say you have team ta uh, tactical and technical training twice a week, let's say Tuesday, Thursdays. That still leaves Wednesday, Friday, Saturday where they're on their own. So what we don't want is athletes at that level to best prepare them and prevent injury because that's the most important thing. We don't want athletes doing absolutely nothing. We need to be doing the right things. So that's just a little bit of a snippet of kind of what we do. But obviously every club will be different based on, you know, their players and what they're trying to get out of the season. Absolutely excellent. And have you got any tips for, let's say, um, 16 to 18-year-old athletes who are just coming through that system? What what can they do to make sure that they're then, yeah, not getting these injuries? Because obviously, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit older now and I realise that it's kind of important <laughs> to not get those injuries. But when you're 16, you don't realise it. So how do you, how do you at 16 do that, that kind of prevention stuff um, to make sure that you can have a, a long and fruitful career? Yeah, do you know what? It's it's hilarious because now I'm getting older as well. I look at the young ones and they're the kind of players that I can rock up. They don't need to do a warm-up. They don't need to cool yeah, down. Yeah, they can yeah, play yeah. 90 minutes and they can probably play 90 minutes the next day. And I'm like, I can't walk. I'm, I'm struggling the next day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely, I think, one of those. It's just with younger athletes, it's kind of telling them the why behind it. That's the most important thing because you don't want to scare athletes. You don't want to say, look, if you don't do this, you might do your ACL. That's not what you want. But you also want to put it in perspective that if they're good athletes and they can go far in their career, whether they go on elite level or non-elite level, if they want to kind of, I guess, drag out the longevity of their career and play as long as possible, that's the most important thing is getting the basics down. So can they find an S&C coach? Is that something they can utilise at the club? If the club don't have one, can they utilise one on their own outside? And if they can't, I think it's just doing basic research on what are the typical movements we need to do. So for me, in the women's game, more than often than not, a lot of female footballers are probably going to have to work on hamstring strength. So that looks like in the gym, what hamstring exercises can we do? Not just deadlifts, you know, there's a variety of things we can do. And even single leg stuff. There's a lot of single leg stuff that I think athletes, especially when they're younger, can start kind of get into a good routine and include so that when they do come to game day and they do come to training sessions, not only do they know the movements if they're there and they're incorporated into their session, but they understand the why behind it. That's the most important thing, especially with the younger players. Absolutely excellent. So Jess, massive thanks for your time and efforts today. It's been a pleasure talking. Where can people find a little bit more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, good question. So um, I think my face is plastered normally over Worcester City Women FC um, like links. So whether that's the website, social media, obviously I'm on social media and LinkedIn myself. Um, and I also do do a, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I do coach a Parkinson's walking football. Um, so basically for not necessarily elderly people, but human beings that have Parkinson's have been diagnosed and they want to get involved in football. Obviously, walking football is very different to normal football. I've tried it myself. It's, it's hard not to run, uh, but I do quite a lot on that front. So again, if there's anyone that's interested in, in kind of the Parkinson side, women's football, ACLs, you know, my email and contact info will be available. So I'd love to connect with as many people as possible. 
Absolutely fantastic. Jess, massive thanks for today. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you, Matt. Take care. Appreciate the Cheers, invite. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Jess for all of her hard work in today's podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Science of Sport Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is an overgrowing library of sports science courses, which are broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more great sports science information, you can get yourself completely for free into the Coach Academy in the next seven days using the link in the show notes. What's more, every time you complete one of the courses, you get a certificate of completion, which can prove your ongoing education. And if you enjoyed today's podcast specifically, Jess has one of those courses, so be sure to check that one out too. And if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you could recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me, I'm Matt Solomon of Science Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.